You are listening to sermon audio from College Creek Church in Annapolis, Maryland. For more information on this local body of believers, visit us online at collegecreekchurch.org or in person every Sunday at 11 a.m. Alexander von Humboldt. Y'all know who I'm talking about, right? No? Strange. Okay, I'll give you his whole name. His whole name is Frederick Wilhelm Heinrich Alexander von Humboldt. Right? Got him? Well, perhaps you know him from the, the Humboldt squid. That's obviously named after him. You can find it in the Humboldt current off the coast of Peru. Still no? More of a mountain person than, than, than the sea? That's fine, too, because you could know him from Humboldt Peak in Colorado or um, Pico Humboldt, which is in Venezuela. Uh, the Humboldt Mountain Range in Nevada or the Humboldt Mountains in Antarctica. Frankly, there's also the Humboldt Mountains in New Zealand. And then there's just Mount Humboldt in the French island of New Caledonia. Um, so really, right, if we're being honest, if you don't know who Alexander von Humboldt is, well, you're pretty similar to everybody else in the world and in this room for sure. But what's weird about that? is that Alexander von Humboldt has more things named after him than anyone else. And yet none of us know who he is. This guy has trees and flowers and dolphins and beetles, two different types of marine snails. I didn't even know there were two different types of marine snails, and they're both named after him. He's got a waterfall, a glacier, countless schools and universities, 11 cities in the United States, multiple asteroids, a location on the moon, a mineral and I'm not even close to done yet. It just keeps going on and on, but I think you get the point, so I'm going to stop there. Alexander von Humboldt is a big deal. Well, he was a big deal, right? He, even though he died when he was 89 years old in Germany, on his 100th birthday, a celebration he wasn't even around for, cities all over America held a party, including a giant one in New York City, where they unveiled an enormous bust of him in Central Park. You can still find it if you go there today. His name meant something, back then anyways. It was important, incredibly important, and yet here we are in a room full of people, and I would wager that absolutely none of us know who he is, whether we've heard of Humboldt Park in Chicago or not. My point is simply this, that fame does not last. The fame of this world does not last. You can strive with all of your power to make your name great, to make it memorable, but even the famous are forgotten. You can build your kingdom as big as you want, and yet all of them have come crashing down eventually. Right, but there is, 
one name. There is a name that is above every name. At that name, the name of Jesus, we're told in scripture that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We're told that his kingdom is a kingdom that not only will not end, but actually will never even be shaken. And so the question that we're faced with today is simply this, whose kingdom are you building? Whose name are you promoting? Because we're going to look at an example in scripture of another group of people who sought to make a name for themselves, but soon they found themselves scattered all over the world. God instead, once again, established his name and his kingdom. Their story is found in Genesis chapter 11. Um, So you may remember, right, we're studying our way through Genesis. We've come to chapter 11. We're in this series that we're calling an eternal family tree. And once again today, we're going to see God preserving his family tree through a guy named Shem. Um, Shem, by the way, that name just means name. And so once again, God raises up his name to continue. I'm getting ahead of myself. So uh, we're going to go to Genesis chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 1 to 9 for us. Um, You can turn there. If you picked up one of these Bibles on your way in, you'll find it on page 9. And if you don't have a Bible of your own at home, please take one of those with you. It's our gift um, to you. All right, Genesis 11, 1 to 9, it says this. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. And they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Whose name are you promoting? Whose kingdom are you building, right? That's really the central question here of the text. And I don't know if you picked up on that phrase that is repeated over and over again in this passage. It's easily overlooked. It doesn't seem central, but it's actually super important. The phrase is simply, come let us, come let us, come let us, they keep saying until God says, hey, come let us. They keep saying, come let us. This phrase just conjures up this idea. Here are these people who are coming up with a plan all of their own making. They're setting a course for their life and they're doing it all without consulting God and without the help of God. Come, let us do this. 
If you've been with us for the last few weeks, you'll know that um, we began all the way back at Genesis 1, and in the story of creation, we see God giving them two commands to all of humanity, two commands, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That is in its simplest form, have children, right? Multiply my image all over the place. And secondly, they're told to have dominion over and to subdue creation, to bring out all of the goodness of creation. These are their two commands. And then when sin enters the picture in chapter three, when mankind chooses to follow themselves and Satan instead of God, everything gets cursed. But specifically, There is punishment, there is judgment, there is cursing brought on their ability to obey those two commands. And so women, um, it says that their pain in childbearing will be increased, right? It's gonna be harder to be fruitful and multiply. We're told that the ground itself is cursed. Now it's gonna be toilsome and a struggle to bring things out of the ground. So subduing all of creation is gonna be more difficult, And in those curses, we actually see this incredible thing that God is doing, this kindness of God, where he is saying, hey, if you want to fulfill the commands, you're gonna have to come hang out with me. We're gonna have to be friends. The curses of Genesis 3 are meant to move people back into relationship with God because now they must depend on God to do the things that he's commanded them to do. So what happens Well, Adam and Eve conceive. Eve gives birth to Cain and she cries out, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. It's because of my relationship with him that I was able to obey this command. And then when when the ground begins to um, present a harvest, when animals begin to multiply, they take those things and they give them as an offering back to God as if to say, God, thank you for what you did to make it possible for me to obey your command. Right? The commands, even the curses, drive people towards God for a relationship with him. But when we come here to chapter 11, these people will not be driven to God. They are refusing to come to him. And instead, they have concocted a plan all of their own. And they will make it happen. They want to multiply, but they don't want to do what God told them to do. They want to multiply and not fill the earth, but fill their city. In fact, the intent of their multiplication, the intent of building the city is so that we don't do what God commanded us to do. We don't fill the earth. But instead, we stay all here in this place, right? They're subduing the ground. They're making bricks and mortar, even the process of building a city, but they're not doing it for God's glory, but for their own. All right, so verse four says this, and they say, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth, right? The problem here is not their desire to build an extraordinary tower or to start and build a city. Those things are fine. Those actually might be things we would consider subduing the earth. This is a good thing to do. The problem is their motivation for doing what they're doing. Their motivation is to make much of themselves and not of God. The reason they wanna fill the earth is so that their city looks good not so that the world would be full of the image of God. And you know, that's the problem in our lives often as well, isn't it? 
It's not the things that we do that are generally the issue. It's what's motivating us to do them. What's the motivation behind the things that we're doing? But the issue is with whose kingdom we're trying to build, whose name we are seeking to advance. The core problem of the people here, the core problem of building Babel is not that they're trying to build a tower into heaven. I remember when I was a kid, that's what we were told, that this tower was supposed to reach to like the literal heaven which isn't even what the text says. The text just says the heavens, that is the sky. But we were told as kids that they were trying to like build a giant staircase so they could like get up into heaven and work their way there. That's, that's not the issue. That's not the problem. The problem is that they're building a city and a tower intent on glorifying themselves and God will not share his glory with anyone. The problem for us is that if we manage to build fame and prestige all around us, the issue is that it won't last. Build all the fame you want. It won't last. Soon enough, we will recede into the footnotes of history and eventually completely off the page like Alexander von Humboldt. Seeking to make your name great will only lead to disappointment in the end. And in the context of eternity, your few little years of fame will be like nothing at all. Nothing at all. But the people here in our text, they have a plan and they are intent on carrying it out. A vision for fame. So they set their plan in motion. But as Proverbs 19.21 tells us, many are the plans in the mind of man. But the purpose of the Lord is the one that will stand. And indeed, that's the case here. Man begins to build his tower. And look what God does. I love this. I love verse 5. It says, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. You see that they had built a tremendous tower, the greatest tower that the world has ever seen. They had built. And what does God do? Oh, that's nice. God comes down to even be able to check it out because it's so inconsequential in the eyes. of It's like when a, when a tiny child builds a tower out of Legos and wants you to look at it and you have to come down to look at it. Or when you see a, a little ant pile and you compare it to your own home, right? These are not even worth comparing. God came down to see their cute little tower that all of mankind had worked so hard together to build that they were so proud of. You see, not only will your fame disappear in the context of eternity, but your, great, your greatest accomplishments will disappear in the context of who God is, in the context of the glory of God. We serve the God of the universe, and yet we're still impressed with our piddly little accomplishments these tiny things that we do, but compare the greatest tower in the world to creation itself, to the earth itself, not to mention the universe. That's nothing. It's like a bunch of first graders arguing about who the best basketball player on their team is while Kobe Bryant's standing on the sidelines. It's just no comparison. And this is what we do all the time. We just fight over who the goat is 
The goat is God. That's who the goat is. But we grow so enamored by our own brilliance and power, and then we create a happy little world and life where we're all focused on ourselves and our own greatness. But God won't let them go down that road very far. God, in his grace, intervenes specifically He disrupts their ability to communicate with each other. They all had one language, but now they have countless languages. And and in this, not only do they not actually finish the tower, it says they, they give up on the tower. So they don't finish the tower, but they do the very thing they were trying to avoid. They spread out all over the earth. And, and as usual, we might look at this and think that God's punishment is harsh, and yet... At the same time, it's a demonstration of grace to them. God would not allow them to create a society that was organized without reference to him. God, in his kindness, would not allow them to live their lives perpetually enamored with themselves. And we ought to pray that God would not allow us to do that either. He does it for his own glory, yes, but also he does it for their sake, right? A mercy of God to have the things in your life that you trust stripped away until you get to the point where you know that it is only God who is worthy of your trust and your dependence and your hope. This is what COVID almost did for us. And then we tried harder to love ourselves, right? It worked for like a month and a half. Everything we loved got stripped away, right? They couldn't make new TV shows. There weren't any sports. It was hard to make money, giant recession. Every, you couldn't travel. Everything you loved got stripped away. And it worked, but we tried real, real hard to get it all back. All the things that we love, we got them all back. Thanks to the government for helping us on our way. We've got it all back, and now we can fall in love with ourselves all over again. But the point of Scripture is this. The only thing, the only thing that is worthy of your trust and your dependence and your hope is God. All of us, at different times and in different ways, we try to make a a name for ourselves. We want to make our name great. But in the end, it is the name of Jesus that will be worshipped for eternity. And telling us of of the failed attempts of these people to, to elevate their name. Genesis 11, at the end of that, it says this. It says, then these are the generations of Shem. That's right after this whole failed attempt. And then it says, these are the generations of Shem. And it feels like it's kind of out of nowhere, unless you know that Shem, as I've already told you, means name. So God says, they tried to make their name great. They tried to make their name great, but I will make my name great. I'm gonna raise up this one, Shem, name. And it's through him that my covenant with my people will continue. Shem is part of the eternal family tree. In response to mankind making their name great, God makes his name great. And then he raises up Shem and then generations. If you follow the rest of chapter 11, these generations come and we get to a guy named Abram. And Abram, eventually, right, he's going to get his name changed to Abraham and he becomes a little bit more familiar to us. And God tells him, 
that Abraham, I'm gonna make your name great in all the earth. That's Genesis 12 too. I'm gonna make your name great in all the earth. And then he goes on to say that in you, all those families, Abraham, that I've scattered all over the world, they're all gonna be blessed in you, Abraham. Because God is the one who gives blessings. God's name receives the glory. And thousands of years later, one of those descendants of Abraham is a guy that many of us know named Jesus. And Jesus is not only the name above all names, but he is, right, a descendant of Abraham, but he is also the son of God. And through him, all of those curses, all the curses of Babel get reversed. And one day we'll see a full reversal to all of these. They'll be completely done away with one day. And he invites us then. Jesus invites us to be part of that kingdom work. Working for a kingdom that will actually last. Making much of a name that actually deserves to be lifted high. All right, so think about it. At the end of Genesis 11, it says that the Lord dispersed the people all over the face of the earth. They were spread out everywhere. They were separated from each other. Many of them are separated from God himself. But then here comes Jesus, right? The line of Shem it leads to Abraham and then it leads to Jesus. Jesus, the son of God, the descendant, the promised descendant of Abraham brings salvation, not just to Shem, and his family, not just to Abram and his family, but to all mankind. He lives this perfect, sinless life. And then he willingly, voluntarily gives up his life. He is crucified, takes our sin upon himself. Our, our attempts at glory, he takes them upon himself and he dies, pays the price in full. And three days later, we're told that he rises again with victory over sin, with victory over death. And then just before he prepares to leave the earth, he gathers all of his followers around him. And he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go out to all of those people who have been dispersed all over the world. And I want you to tell them this incredible good news that if they would repent and believe in me, they would be saved. If they would repent and believe in me, they would be part of my kingdom. Right? This is where we see Matthew, Matthew 28, right? This is a fairly famous verse. It says this, Jesus came to them and he says this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go, right? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. But of course, the problem is that all those people that are all over the place, they all speak different languages. So what is God going to do? But the language barriers that came about at the Tower of Babel are no match for the spirit of our God. It's God who changed those languages and it's God who has power over those languages. And so God then empowers his people by his spirit to speak the truth to people from all over the place, all sorts of different languages. And we see it happening just a few days after this great commission. Acts chapter two says this. It's amazing, the day of Pentecost. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, 
They were all together in one place. That's the followers of Jesus. They're all together. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And hear this, they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterances. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, this mighty rushing wind, they all come together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, not all these, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear them each in our native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to the Cyrenes, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we all hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Everyone hears it in their own language. This is the work of God. In the days of Babel, people came up with the plan to separate themselves from God. And on the day of Pentecost, it was God's plan carried out in God's way to bring people back to him. It was in Genesis 11 where they try to climb up to God, but it's in Acts chapter two where God comes down. And he reverses the curse of Babel, now bringing people together instead of separating them out. Those who were, Scripture says, far off have been brought near through Christ. And so God here intervenes for all of these peoples, for many peoples, many nations, every race, every tongue. And he makes one people, his people. That's why 1 Peter says that all those who follow Christ, all those other things that we might think separate us or divide us, all those other things, he says, "Mm, in Christ, we now are one chosen people, one holy nation. And he says that we are one royal priesthood. And that priesthood, the role of the priesthood is not to make our own name great, but to make the name of Jesus great, to amplify and lift up and worship his name. And we're told that one day, all these people from all of these places, all these different people will gather together around the throne of God and they will sing this in praise of Jesus. They will sing, worthy Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign over all the earth. We will not only praise him in unison, but we will praise him because we've been brought together in unison. We will praise him because he died and by his blood, he ransomed all sorts of people all together to be this priesthood. And if you don't know Jesus, I'll tell you this. If you don't know him, he's ready to ransom you too. 
He's ready. All he would ask is that you would repent and believe in him. Here's the thing. The only type of people who will not be found in the eternal presence of God are those who choose to build their own kingdoms for their own glory or any other name that they want to make great that's not the name of Jesus. Anyone who would make much of the name of Jesus will be in his eternal presence. All right, all the way back there in Genesis 11, they built a city. And we might look at that and say, oh, maybe they weren't supposed to be building cities, right? Not true. Because here's this incredible thing that God does. We get to the very end of scripture. These people who've been spread out over all of the earth. Now God says, I'm building a city. A city for my own glory. A city for my name to be made great. And he says, any who would come to me will find refuge here. And we're told this in Revelation 21, 2 to 3, it says, And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The intent of the people at Babel was to dwell together separate from God. But God's eternal design is to dwell with his people in the midst of his own city forever. So let me just ask you this. Whose kingdom are you pursuing? Whose, whose name are you trying to elevate? Alexander von Humboldt did a pretty good job elevating his own name until everyone forgot him. The people of Babel were an unstoppable force until God stopped them. Only the kingdom of God will endure. And he will have no challenges to his glory or to his name. So whose kingdom are you pursuing? Whose name are you glorifying? Let's, let's pray. God, we give praise to you because you alone are, are due our praise. You alone are worthy of our glory. But Lord, we also know that so often in our lives, we get consumed with making ourselves look good, of making much out of ourselves. And so, Lord, we, we just ask that you, would, that you would forgive, that you would help us to see your incredible glory as so great that we would know that anything that we would do would pale in comparison if we keep it for ourselves but that everything that we do for your glory just adds to the overwhelming wonder of who you are. And so Lord, we thank you for Jesus, the one who made your name known here on earth so that we could make your name known as well. It's in his name we pray, amen.